tell you, I hope we don't have trouble like we did last night with this thing. Uh, I was up in Canada one time. I gave my name to sobriety date, and, and the damn thing just flopped. <laughs> fell down, and it took them 35 minutes to ever get it right. And, and you begin to wonder about things like that. As I look out uh, uh, in the group here tonight, uh, I see a few people who have heard me uh, a few times, and... Uh, but every time I stand up a deal like this, and what Tim went through last night, it reminds me of a story. I've told it many times. I'm going to tell it again tonight. Uh, back in North Carolina several years ago, they had a, one of these conventions. They had a long-winded speaker. There's some of them around. And, uh, <laughs> and the first hour, this guy talked about 12 steps. In the second hour, he got into 12 traditions. In the third hour, he got into three legacies. And everybody left but one person, one man that kept sitting on the front row. And, of course, the speaker got concerned, wound up his talk, ran down from the podium, grabbed the man by the hand, says, I want to ask you one question. Everybody left but you. Why'd you stay? He said, hell, I'm the next speaker. Well, <laughs> you kind of know how I feel, I guess. Uh, it's good to be here, and uh, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Dave Cook. Hi, everybody. I'm a member of the Gratitude Study Group in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the Safe Haven Group down in Harker's Island, North Carolina. And uh, my sobriety date is September the 12th, 1957, and I'm very grateful for that sobriety. Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> in some parts of the country, people kind of get resentful when you give your sobriety date. You know, out in Texas, if you don't give your sobriety date, by God, they'll shoot you. And, uh, <laughs> and there was an old-timer from East Texas named a uh, fellow, some of the people in here remember him, named Burton Crawford from Kilgore, Te Kilgore Texas. And, and Burton had the best expression I've ever heard about giving a sobriety date. He'd say, my name is Burton Crawford, I'm from Kilgore, Texas. And I've been sober ever since I can remember. Well, <laughs> you think about it, and that about covers the whole deal. No, I, I got sober down in Roanoke, Virginia, the old Central Group, and the second meeting I ever went to was a discussion meeting, and uh, I really didn't know what a discussion meeting was. They had 13 or 14 wicker chairs sitting in a circle, and I began to wonder what I was going to see when it got to me. And it finally <laughs> got to me, and the man who had become my first sponsor, although I didn't know it then, I know it now, but I didn't know it then. But uh, he spoke up and says, give your name and your sobriety date. That's all you're qualified to do. <laughs> and he explained to me later that that was all I was going to be able to do for quite some time. And the second reason is in the old central group in Roanoke, uh, they said if you remember that group and got behind the podium, and if you didn't give your sobriety date, you usually didn't have one. And so that's the reason. You know, Roanoke, the railroad was a railroad town, and a lot of a lot of people coming through, and you know how they drift through sometimes, the strangers, and say, I've been around AA 25, 30 years, and somebody holler out in that group and say, how long have you been sober? That's what they want to know, how long have you been sober, and that's what uh, I want to know, too, because that's what got me to where I am tonight. I'm one of the miracles that you speak of, and when I came along, I was 29 years of age, and that was unheard of at that time, and... Uh, I got here the hard way. I worked at it. We work at becoming alcoholics. We don't realize it until we get sober. But I worked at becoming an alcoholic. I was raised down in northeastern North Carolina in a, 
in a God-fearing Christian home, which is probably a requirement for being a member of AA. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, two sisters and a mother that loved me to death and a father that had a drinking problem, although I didn't know he had the problem that he had until I got sober in AA. And I know today that he was an alcoholic, although he never had the chance to find alcoholics in numbers. He died drunk when he was 54 years of age. He lost a family uh, because of his drinking. Led to a divorce in my home when I was 12. My mother was financially able to uh, give us all a good education, my two sisters and myself. And, and uh, so I just didn't, uh, growing up as a kid, I remember promising my mother I'd never be like him. And I kind of hated my father, to be honest with you. And uh, I knew what drinking could do uh, to a grown man. Uh, of course, I didn't know the degree. Of the, the hostility that happens in the home, the verbal, uh, not the physical, but the verbal. And, uh, and I remember the nights of hearing them argue. And uh, I, I never thought I'd have any problem with it until I went off to college or freshman in school. And I was there when the fellows from World War II just came back, older than I, and I was in that environment. Uh, and I've always said if you're in an environment of sobriety or drinking, if you stay in it long enough, you'll become a part of it. And that's what happened to me eventually. I was 16 years old when I took my first drink and uh, got sick. And uh, I had a lot of fun drinking in college. I really did. Never had any serious problems. Didn't know what a hangover was. Did a lot of crazy things, and people laughed about it. And uh, came time to graduate. I studied engineering, but because of my basketball ability, I was offered a job coaching high school basketball down in eastern North Carolina. And I look back at it now, you know, kind of glorious thing, a little glory associated with it. We call it ego today in AA, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I look back, you know, there, there was so many, so many signs that it, I should, I just didn't have the ability to see myself for such a long period of time in my drinking. I didn't drink for 13 years. And at that 13 years, I, 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 I just went down to the end of the road. I got to the place where I'd run out of people, places, and things in 13 years. I uh, fell upstairs in the coaching profession and went to a high school down in eastern Carolina, and after two years went to a much larger school. The only time I was drinking then was on the weekends. Uh, weekend get-togethers with some of my schoolmates. They were weekend brawls is what they were. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I'd get back. It was a rural consolidated school on Tuesday, a day late. And, uh, you know, they don't look upon that too good. And uh, I began to have some other problems. Uh, uh, the main problem that got me into a lot of trouble after I'd been there at this second school for a year, I'd got in, got in with a bunch of people which were school board members that drank. And that was a place for me to go about every night to drink socially, I guess. I don't know. And uh, it wasn't long before I was called on the carpet about my drinking in the community by the principal. Of course, you denied it, and I resented it, and I lied about it. And, uh, you know, it says alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Well, the alcoholic is cunning and is baffling. And uh, so we get people off our back. So I decided what I'd do is uh, I'd courted a girl about two weeks in the community, and we got married. Two weeks. Uh, didn't know her very well, and uh, <laughs> uh, we carried two other couples on the honeymoon with us. So uh, 
And you know something's wrong. I got married on July the 4th. <laughs> a big church wedding. Known this lady for two weeks. And I can remember my good mother stopping me outside the church just before the final of the ceremony began. She said, son, you don't have to do this. <laughs> and God, I wish I'd listened to mama that time because <laughs> this was a mistake from the very beginning. And, uh, and because of the embarrassment it would bring in the community, me coaching and teaching school, uh, we would try to stick it out. But I'm community drunk by now. Everybody knows it except she and I. And finally she had enough and she got up and left. And along about this time, now see, when I came along, there were no such thing as treatment centers. There were what they call drying out places. And there were some good ones up, up and down the East Coast. Uh, my mother sent me to four that I can recall to uh, taper off. And I don't know if you ever tapered off or not, but I enjoyed tapering off. Uh, it was fun and... Uh, and if you taper off long enough, you will reach your goal of what you're trying to attain. And uh, I'd come back in these places worse than when I went. And my mother spending good money. And then I had a brief period that I didn't drink, and uh, things got a little bit better. And then uh, finally I got in a lot of problems in school. Uh, what was the girls' basketball team? I'd been coaching boys uh, basketball and coaching baseball. And in the middle of the year, the girls coach had to go into service and asked me to take over the girls team. Now I was going to these ball games loose, not drunk, but just moving good, you know what I mean? Real fluid and uh, drinking vodka, you know, it leaves you breathless and uh, and uh, I wasn't drunk, but I was I was good and loose and uh, and the first night I had these girls, you know, I'd been in the habit of the boys and Hit them on the rear and let them go. Well, I started hitting the girls on the rear and got parents come down out of the stands, commotion broke out. And I really know what the hell was happening. I knew the next morning when the school board met. Uh, and they gave me a chance to resign and, uh, and I did and uh, I'd been there. This man that did so much for me, he had a... He had aspirations for me to replace him as principal and all that stuff, and I, and I just drank it up, although I didn't know it at that time. And so I moved a little bit further east. In my home state, uh, you keep moving east, there's nowhere to go. And uh, I finally wound up with nowhere to go. Uh, this school was a little bit further east. It was five or six miles from where I was living in a place called Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and I was... The only way I can describe my drink at that time, I had to get up four or five o'clock in the morning to uh, stop the shakes. Drink enough to stop the shakes in order to shave and shower and get my clothes on and go to school. And knew what was going to happen at about 12, the shakes would start again. Have enough hit in the gym to take a few drinks or in the automobile to stop the shakes, pray for three o'clock, go back to town, do the same thing over. And then one day, uh, just in the middle of the day, I'd been there six and a half months. I was going to school under the influence sometimes. Uh, the principal stopped me in the hall and said, Dave, we don't need you anymore. We just don't need you anymore. We didn't have a conference. We didn't talk about it. Uh, I didn't cry, and that's unusual at that time. And uh, and that was, as I look back now, what I know in Alcoholics Anonymous and what I've learned about alcoholism, I really believe that I crossed that invisible line at that time that we speak of. That I take one drink and I can no longer guarantee you my behavior, and that's what an alcoholic is as far as I'm concerned. 
I'd gotten to that point. Now, I'd experienced blackouts before. And uh, this time, I, I, it was a prolonged blackout. And I woke up in jail for the first time in the city I was living. The county health doctor came to the cell one morning. Been about two and a half weeks on this drunk. And, uh, and this man says, uh, your mother has come down here and straightened out all this mess. And we're going to send you to a place where they can cure you. And now my mother been straightening out messes for a long time, big money. And uh, I began to think, well, I was going to one of those places to taper off, to sit in a lawn chair on some soft green grass on an umbrella and, and sip a little. And, and that's now where I went. Uh, uh, in my home state, uh, the state insane asylum is called Dix Hill. I've often said I, too, found my thrill on Dick's Hill. <laughs> uh, uh, just uh, a little over 27 years of age when I went to Dick's Hill the first time. Uh, my mother had me admit it, and it was the greatest thing she ever did. She'd done everything she knew to do. And uh, they put me in a ward the first week called the inebriate ward. I didn't know what it meant, but it sounded academic, and I thought it was a good place to be. <laughs> And I adjusted that environment right away. Uh, the people in that ward chased squirrels most of the time. <laughs> They'd run under the beds, up the walls, under the chairs, across the tables, and so I started doing the same thing, you know. And never caught any, come close a couple of times. Uh. <laughs> and then I got into that disease, uh, hallucination, DTs, and uh, they carried me down in, in that building where they kept all the drunks, or called the Hitchin Building. In the basement of the building, they had padded cells down there and take the clothes away from you and let you have your running fits. And that was the cure for alcoholism in the middle 1950s in the state of North Carolina. Have your running fits. And when you got through having them, uh, they'd give you clothes back and put you upstairs with the rest of the drunks and now, you got to understand something. I was the only man there that was at a young age. The men were a lot older than I, a lot older. And I didn't understand what I was doing there because, uh, well, I took the educational advantage at one time. You know, I thought I was there maybe to write a book. You know how we are. Uh, <laughs> expose this place to society. And, and one night, uh, these uh, patients, uh, they were playing uh, poker with matchsticks as chips, and as they were playing cards, they began to talk the reason they were there. One man spoke up and said, I'm here because my wife wanted to get rid of me. And I kind of identified with that. I thought maybe my mother wanted to get rid of me. And then I heard a man speak up, and I can see that man's face tonight. Just as clear it was 50-some years ago when it says, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. The first time I ever heard the word for the word itself, and the first thing that popped in my mind, I don't know why, because I remember it, was thinking of my father. And that's when I began to compare my drinking with my father's drinking. And if the truth was known, he was a much better man I ever hoped to be in drinking. He lost a family. He didn't get out or kicked out of his profession, but I did. He didn't have to be locked up for a period of time. He didn't have to go to the nut houses and do things I did. And, uh, and I've always said I, I wish my daddy could have found it. He had made a good memory. You know, he liked to exaggerate and uh, tell stories. And you know how we are. We kind of stretch it once in a while. And 
And uh, he would have made a good member. But uh, that's not to be, and that's the way it was. I uh, got out of that, uh, in that building for 30-some-odd days. The day came, I had to leave. I didn't have anywhere to go. Everything I'd accumulated since I'd finished college, I'd lost. The cars, the wife, the, that brief marriage, the job, the, the whole work. I'd lost everything. And what do you do? I, I did what like you do your kid when he comes home from school in the afternoon. I went back home to Mother, the only place I had to go. Took me in, and uh, I'm uh, close to, well, past 28 years of age now. Been in Dixfield right much. Uh, more to come, and uh, and the good family doctor. Now, I don't know anything about drugs, but I do know something about tablets. And the, the good doctor gave me some tablets to take. Now, you talking about being loose. Uh, I was real, I, was, I got dangerous. Uh, I was running around the crowd I'd been in school with at night, you know, going out to the restaurant, eating big meals and drinking, and, uh, and I was just taking my medicine. And I was usually in worse shape than they were. And then one night the bottle was passed. I'd been at home nine and a half months. And I took that drink. And as I know it today, the obsession that we speak of set in. And I had to have another one. In two days I was back in the place that said never go again as long as I live, Dix Hill. And to make a long story short, I went back to Dix Hill five times in six months because I'd become an alcoholic as I know it today. Take one drink, and I can no longer guarantee my behavior. Uh, the last time I went back to Dix Hill, uh, I tried to drink on top of antibutes. And I'll save you some time if you're thinking about it. it. It don't work. It can be deadly. And you know how it is about being dead, all alcoholics. We think about committing suicide quite often. I can remember when I, in, in the, when I was at Dix Hill one time, I, I thought about just doing it all away until I realized it was fatal. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, they didn't pass by the coffin much after that. You know, I know some of you had never had dreams like that, but uh, I had quite a few. But they uh, went back to Dixville, and this time they put me in the nut part of the bug house instead of the drying out part. And there was a distinct difference because this is where I found out being strapped down to the bed in a straight jacket having those fits, and I found out how you live better electrically, too. Uh, there was an old fellow from down Fort Payne, Alabama. He'd been dead for several years, named Pelham Green. And Pelham said, used to say about shock treatment, he said, after I had one of them things, I felt very good. You damn right you'll feel better after you had one. I never want to forget it. And I look back now where I was in that ward with those people, and I accepted my fate at that time that I was one of them. We hear a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. We use it a lot in our program, and it's outside, too, the word coincidence. A lot of coincidence happened to me before I ever got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And one happened one day at the state hospital. Uh, one day they came and got me, carried me back over to the Edson building with the rest of the rummies. And uh, for some strange reason, I've never, I never questioned it, and I was put back over there with the drunks. And now I'd been there so much, they more or less made me an honorary attendant. I worked in the kitchen, worked in the cafeteria, and I was allowed to go to the big building and get the mail at certain days, and a couple other fellows would go. We'd get all the packages. And one day we decided we would escape. <laughs> well, I don't want to sound dramatic, but that's what it was. Uh, 
And, uh, oh, this is a high fence, barbed wire on top. And we went over it and got in downtown Raleigh. And old Johnson, or Andrew Johnson Hotel, is gone now. But we got us a bottle. And it was about 6 o'clock. We were in there watching the TV. And, and you know those streamers that come on when it's a hurricane or something uh, at the bottom? Uh, one came on. Three criminal insane that had just escaped from Dick's Hill. <laughs> and one... One of the fellows said, wonder who the hell it is. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, uh, we knew who it was in a moment because they flashed those steel pictures. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and God, that, that'll wake you up real quick. And, uh, and one fellow started crying and started running. We haven't seen him since. I don't know what happened to him. This is 50-some years ago. And uh, I don't know what happened to him. The other fellow myself decided since we were gangsters, we'd better split up. Uh, he went his way and I went my way and uh, the next morning I was on downtown Raleigh and a friend of the, my mother's that knew my past and knew my problems put me on a bus and sent me back to my hometown. I got back to my hometown and broke into my mother's on you know, the right side of the tracks, all that stuff, and good neighborhood and and she wasn't home. I later found out where she was. She was in Richmond with a nervous breakdown in the hospital. And uh, I didn't know any of this until they brought her home and found me, my two sisters, and a friend of the family like a father to me. And they got together. You know who they are. Uh, they are those people that get in one room and crack the door, put you in the other room, and they talk about how much they love you but what they got to do. And then one of them came in the room I was in and uh, began to talk to me. He says, you're killing mother. You're killing mother. We want you to leave this part of the country. And uh, they gave me a, a sword, a wad of money. And you know how it is with a practicing alcoholic. Uh, I began to agree that it was a good thing that I would leave when I saw that money. And, and you know, get a little green on your hip helps. And, uh, and so I agreed. It was enough, I've often said, to go to the West Coast and live comfortably for a period of time if I'd used it right. And they, I mean, it was cold cash. They really meant for me to leave. And so I bid them all farewell. And, to embark on my journey, and uh, and I went four miles to a neighboring town. <laughs> Pulled into old hotel over there, and uh, the old Weldon Hotel. That's where the coastline and the seaboard used to meet, a railroad town. And the Weldon Hotel at one time was a prominent hotel, but when I got there, it was a little bit downgraded. And, uh, and I had a lot of friends there as long as I had that money, and eventually... Uh, I don't know how many months it was. The money ran out, and uh, and so I'd done what I'd done previously. I had, uh, I went over, you know, I never wrote a bad check. I wasn't going to make it good the next morning. <laughs> and uh, and I had a history doing that when I was even teaching school. And uh, I can remember my thinking at that time. I, I can remember the deputy sheriff used to come to me this car, rural consolidated school and call me outside about a bad check. And he was driving those old black plumbers with an antenna on it that just just waved. That's always been an authority to me, one of those antennas. And the kids would be looking out the window, and some of the teachers too. And the thought was going through my mind. My God, they don't know it, but I'm an undercover agent for the sheriff's department. <laughs> I began to think things like this. Now, you know, I was having a tough time, although I didn't know it. And uh, 
But this day I went over, a friend of the family in business, I bought an outboard motor. I didn't have a boat, but I bought a motor and, you know, write a big check, get the chain, pick up the motor later, and sure enough, uh, they uh, called my mother to tell her that my motor was ready, and, uh, and my mother put two and two together, and uh, and John, that afternoon, John Law was over there in that hotel to get me out of there and carry me back to my hometown, put me in jail, and uh, there was no ditch hill this time. There was no tapering off this time. And uh, I was in this cell for several days, and every morning all the drunks got out except me. And I began to raise hell down there one night about I wanted to see my attorney. He says, who is your attorney? Got the jailer down there. He said, who is your attorney? I told him, he said, talk to him all you want to. is in the next cell block, and sure enough, he was. <laughs> God worked in mysterious ways. This man, uh, this man later became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, died sober, and, and a member of our state legislature. But uh, he couldn't help me that night, I'll tell you that. Uh, Amen. And uh, I had to stand up trial in the court of law of something I didn't know out on a previous drunk in a blackout. And the prosecuting attorney was my mother's next-door neighbor. And he didn't seem to know who I was. And nobody seemed to know who I was. And then they carried me down the road a little bit further to another courthouse the next day. And on trial again, by something I didn't know I'd done on a blackout. And I, I moved east about as far as you can go on a chain gang, uh, down in the Great Dismal Swamps on a chain gang. I've always been ashamed of it, still ashamed of it. But uh, uh, if it took this for me to get the Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I think it did for me, and I thank God for it, because uh, I was one of these that had to be beat down to my knees before I could see myself as I really was. And that's the thing I don't understand about alcoholism even today. In spite of my sobriety, your sobriety, and the people we're going to see walking that door for the first time, that's the inability of the alcoholic to see himself as he really is in his worst drinking, in his worst moments. And I just about died from it because I could not see myself as I really was. Well, on this place, uh, I'd heard of AA before now. I'd heard of AA in Dix Hill. On Sunday afternoon, these jokers from Raleigh come over and put on a meeting. And they say, AA is here, everybody in the auditorium. We'd go in there. I was the vile guy in the back of the room raising hell, making fun of them. Drank the coffee and ate the donut. And, you know, I was sober about two years when I realized one day that every Sunday afternoon they left and went home. <laughs> that was the first time I heard about it. The second time was uh, just before I, when I finally came back from the chain gang, which I'll tell you about in a minute. That was an old time in my part of the country. He was a very successful lawyer, had a drinking problem, lost his practice, and wound up out in Cleveland area. Dr. Bob got him sober man named Vernon Strickland, one of our first delegates to the state of North Carolina. Vernon came back to eastern North Carolina and started the first group down east to a place called Rich Square. An old time in my hometown took me down there one day to talk to Vernon about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd been in Dixie right much, and uh, the man took the time to talk to me about it and tell me about it and told me his story. And the end result of the conversation, I told him I was too young to be an alcoholic. Now, our brain had been about pickled by then. 
And I never forgot what Vernon told me that day. He said, son, says, I'll tell you what, says, keep drinking and be patient. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the advice he gave me. And it was about a year later that I, I run across Vernon when I just got a little bit sober in my hometown. And he says, I see you. You kept drinking and was patient. And I said, yep, I was patient. The third time I heard about Abe was in his prison camp as a young superintendent, and on Saturday afternoon I had to cut his grass with a push mower. And uh, I had dinner with him and his wife every Saturday night, and I looked forward to it. And uh, he began to talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and maybe that's what I should do. And, and I, I told him the same thing I told so many people before that I was too young. <coughs> Excuse me. I still not could not see myself as I really was. The day came that I had to leave this place. I went back to my hometown, which is they'll carry you back to your hometown and put you out, and that's what happened. I went back to the only place I knew to go was back to my mother. And this time I went to the back door instead of the front door. I guess I was second class by now. And I remember my mother talking to me about how mothers will do. And they got together again, and uh, well, my brother-in-law came over and got into it. Well, I won't get into that, but anyway, <laughs> uh, I heard my mother say that he stays here tonight whether you like it or not. That's my boy. And that's when I made a vow to myself that I was not sobriety, that I just wouldn't drink anymore for her. And I don't recommend this before A or after A for somebody else. And I was able to do this for four and a half months. One day it was suggested maybe I should go to work. It's been a while. Uh, didn't have any trouble with IRS there for a while there. I remember one day they came to see me. I was drunk at my mother's house out there in the yard laying down. And uh, they came to see me about some back taxes. And I said, uh, that's not me. I was in Dick's Hill then. And the guy looked at me like, well, he's crazy as hell. And uh, I said, go talk to mother. She'll tell you all about it. And he came back and shook his head and kept on going. But one day, like I said, uh, I was interviewed for some jobs up in Maryland and Virginia uh, through an agency in Richmond. I didn't think I could get a job state in North Carolina on account of what had happened. And, uh, and when I, my mother carried me to these places in a period of four days, and we wound up in Roanoke, Virginia, one afternoon. Talking to the superintendent of city schools in Roanoke. And at that time, uh, I was off a job in the largest high school in southwest Virginia at that time, Thomas Jefferson Senior High School, assistant basketball coach and teacher mathematics, in spite of where I'd been. And he got some references from me, got on the telephone. I told my mother, she was sitting right there with me. I said, it's all over now. And he was gone about 30 minutes to come back. I said, I understand you had a problem with drinking one time, that you're doing all right now. I said, yes, sir, I am. I thought it was. And I had to go back to my home. My mother financed the whole deal. I had a place to go. When I got back to Roanoke, a nice home to stay in, a place to take meals, a good job, and a new start in life in spite of where I'd been. And on the way back, I had to change buses in, Ren in Richmond, and uh, I decided I'd have one drink. But I bought two pints. You know how we are. <laughs> And this is beginning uh, my last drunk, the only drunk that I like to talk about because this is the drunk that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous. I got back to Roanoke, and instead of going to the place I was supposed to go, I checked into the big hotel, started living it up, writing checks. I was able to work one week and got back to the morning drink on the fifth day. 
After the second week, the school official tried to help me, tried to get me sober, and didn't lose the job at that time, but eventually did. Got in trouble, writing checks, and that whole thing again. And midway this drunk, my mother got in touch with me over the telephone and gave me the greatest gift she'd ever given me since the day I was born. That's when she kicked me out of her life, and I knew she meant it. And what happened, I wound up on the streets in Rona, Panhandle, doing the best I could. On Sunday morning, September 11, 1957, I was in the back alley down on what they call Skid Row, which was the market. Hadn't taken that drink, and, uh, and I don't know about you, but I remember when my moment of truth came, it seemed like to me the earth stopped moving. You could hear a pin drop. Everything stopped. And I realized suddenly that I was going to die in that back alley from what I was doing. And I guess I had enough self-respect I didn't want to die in that back alley. And I prayed out to a God I knew nothing about for some help. Maybe it was a coincidence. I don't know. But that superintendent of the city school had been looking for me for several days. He didn't know anything about drunks, didn't know anything about alcoholics or Alcoholics Anonymous. He just wanted to help a human being because he'd talked to my mother and found out she wasn't going to help me. And he found me that Sunday afternoon. I hadn't taken a drink. And he carried me to a... He got in touch with a man that knew a man in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that afternoon, I was carried to a 12-step clubhouse in downtown Ronald called the Easy Does It Club. <laughs> I never want to forget it. Never want to forget my trip to... I got to the point on that drunk that I couldn't have found oblivion anymore. My toenails hurt. My hair hurt. Tired of the high cost of low living. And that's what it was. Uh, the only vision I had was straight ahead, no peripheral vision, Drake Duggett. And they carried me up those steps in that clubhouse. And uh, we say we don't look them over when they come in. By God, you look me over. <laughs> and what I had was what I had on a paper bag that had a ear syringe, a toothbrush, and a razor, and ten pennies to my name when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, an old gentleman standing in the right-hand corner gave me this, and they began to talk to these members over here. And, and this man later found out his name was Old Man John. Old man John. And this man put his arm around me and said, Son, says, all you got to do is listen to these people and do what they tell you to do, and you never have to be alone again. And by God, I look back now, and he rang my bell. That's whatever what he did. Old man John. I helped bury him. He come in age 72 and died the six continuous years of sobriety. We hear different kinds of alcoholics, old ones, young ones, and all these. It doesn't happen two kinds, drunk ones and sober ones. And old man John gave me the magic words. We love you. You're going to be all right. Just do what they tell you to do. And so I began to shake a little, and I said something about a drink. I said, oh, no, we don't do it that way. And uh, then I said something about some tablets, and I thought I'd started a revolution. And, uh, <laughs> and they said, drink the coffee. Drink the coffee. Now, I've always said and still contend that there's a hell of a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous making coffee that don't have any business doing it. <laughs> and, and this was one of those days. It was that ropey stuff. I thought it was a requirement, and I sat there and drank coffee the whole afternoon, got sick from it, drinking that darn coffee that just about killed me. And then they took me to my first meeting that night. I don't know 
I remember a guy talking. I remember looking out of the window how far it was down to the ground floor if I went out. You know how we think. But after the meeting, the magic words, strangers. They didn't ask me where I came from, if I had insurance. No, they didn't ask me a damn thing. They said, we love you and we understand, and you're going to be all right. That's all the talk. And it was proved to me that night after that meeting that I didn't have to be alone anymore. Three men got me a room at the YMCA, and they stayed with me all night long, talking to me about alcoholics and their story, what they could do. They promised me, said, if you get too bad, we'll get a doctor, but how about trying it our way? Cairo syrup coming out of my ears, <laughs> orange juice and hearing all that talk. And one of them, old Claude, did now, but old Claude said, I never forgot it. And because this is when I really began to believe myself, when he said that uh, all we do, we just try to do it a day at a time. And I began to think that maybe... Maybe, maybe I could do it. But somewhere in the dark recess of my mind that night, I knew it then, as I know it tonight, that I had to be around them to do it. I had to be around them to do it. And that's the reason I'm here tonight. i got to still be around you to do it, in spite of all these years. And so uh, the next morning they carried me back to that club, and I was introduced to the man who would become my first sponsor. I didn't ask for him. Uh, I've been blessed with good sponsorship. Uh, Every one of them led me with a kind and firm hand. And a lot of people have helped me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was my first wife who died after several years ago. And and didn't remember but two women in my life. That was her, my first wife, my second wife, and then Julie. Julie, stand up. We get run out of town. you got to go with me, honey. And uh, he asked me a lot of questions that morning, and I lied, and then he said, stop telling me lies, let's get truthful. And uh, how many checks you got out that first thing? I didn't know how he knew that. <laughs> and he got me a room at a boarding house there in Roanoke, uh, wherever there. Each one I was had a room with six of us all together. And, uh, and these five other men, there's two of us still sober today. Uh, Charlie P., who some of you know. And Charlie celebrated his uh, 49th birthday last week. And uh, Charlie's still uh, doing well. Uh, he's got some health problems, but uh, he was the first man in Alcoholics Anonymous that ever told me he loved me. Because uh, it, they were taking bets on us that Charlie and I couldn't make it. And uh, we didn't think we could either. And I remember one night at that boarding house, Charlie said, Dave said, if I don't make it, I hope you make it. And that was a that was a that was a love love comment I know today. And I think back of those six men, they gave me much of those five men and, and two of them committed suicide and went back to drinking, uh, one of them had long term sobriety, another one committed suicide because of other health problems, and the other two died drunk. And uh, the other one dry drunk, and then there's still one alive. And he calls me about every Christmas. He used to. Doesn't call me anymore. Call me collect. <laughs> and, and same question. Why could you do it and I couldn't? 
And the only reason I could tell him is I followed the directions. I just followed the directions. So I got uh, involved in AA, and then God, the old central group, was a well-structured group. Uh, the steering committee was the ruling hand in that group. They had a uh, conference room in the meeting place. I called it an inventory room. Uh, I mean, sometimes the old timer says, come on here, we want to take the inventory. Sit you down, and uh, they'll just take the inventory, unannounced. Uh, they solved a lot of my problems. Uh, they, uh, uh, they finally let me talk. I'd been sober about nine months, and the steering committee had to meet, and they finally gave the, they the okay that I talked. Well, one of the fellows at the house got drunk, and the others brought him back and propped him up in the back, and I stuck. I started a talk on how not to slip. Never heard of one, but I started one. And I'd been talking about two or three minutes, and uh, somebody said, sit down. <laughs> and uh, I kept on, he said, sit down. And you know, when you start raving sober, you don't, <laughs> you don't listen to good. Finally, he comes to the podium, got me by the arm, carried me right down the aisle. Everybody's eyes are big. And, uh, and my thinking was, my God, i got too much power for him. He don't want me to overdo it tonight. <laughs> and I, I was hanging around a bunch of people then that uh, were telling me, you know, all I needed was the first step, take the rest if I wanted to. That's all I needed. And I began to think like it was doing. And, you know, I was no different from anybody else that comes to alcoholics now, early sobriety. I wanted to get good before I got well. And I found out later on that you got to work these 12 steps to accomplish that. And then one night they called me into that uh, inventory room. And, uh, well, they talked to me about my job the first time, about maybe I should go to work and what I could do. Now, in that meeting was an attorney, a doctor, a registered nurse, my sponsor, and Red, sign painter, had a third-grade education. Red is the one that solved my employment problem. They talked about what I should do and so forth and so on. Red speaks up and says, Dave. He said, it seems to me that if you studied engineering in college, that's what you ought to be doing in life. Well, hell, nobody ever explained to me that way before. <laughs> and so uh, I took that suggestion and made an appointment with the district engineer Owen Salem and went over there and had an interview set up. And they had told me, he said, tell him the whole truth. Tell him the whole, I told him the whole load. I mean, I really, and he sat there in complete amazement. And, uh, <laughs> and that's what happens when you tell the truth. Uh, people are just in complete amazement, and they know you're telling the truth. And uh, he said, son, if we are willing to help yourself that much, and these people are willing to help you, and we're willing to help you too, when can you go to work? This was the middle of December now. I got sober in September, just two weeks before Christmas. And I said, well, <laughs> i got a lot of business to tend to, and... <laughs> I was scared to death, you know. And uh, I said, be the first of February. He said, fine, you come over the first of February, we're going to put you to work. And Red and, and uh, my wife, uh, later on, who became my wife, Sue, were out there in the car. They had carried me over there. And I uh, went out to the car, and uh, you get the job. Yep, when you go to work. I told him what happened. I carried my ass right back in and went to work that afternoon. <laughs> that afternoon. And like I've always said, that's AA in action, I guess. I don't know. 
and God, I started a career in what I'd studied to do and uh, with the Highway Department of Virginia. And uh, later, uh, in 1959, I, I moved back to North Carolina to my home state to take a job at the Highway Department. Went down there to get a divorce from that marriage I'd been messed up with when I was drinking in order to marry Sue. And, uh, and my sponsor had made arrangements for me to meet his man He'd, he'd come through Roanoke, and I'd met him one time for the sponsor me when I got to Raleigh. And this man's name was Tom Burrell. Tom was a close friend of Bill's. He was a New Yorker. He married a lady in Raleigh. And, uh, and Tom was the man that, on the old Alcoholic Foundation, the trustees, he replaced Dr. Bob on the old foundation as a trustee. And I traveled around with him when I was young in AA when he was speaking around the country. You got to meet a lot of people. And, of course, I got to meet Bill a little later when I was a delegate in the state of North Carolina in the middle of the 60s. But he, gave, he was the man who rammed the big book down my throat because I, I, when I moved to Raleigh, I'd ask people questions to let them know how smart I was. And I, and I asked Tom things, and he said, read the book, and then we'll talk. And he was one of these people that made you sit down, and he stood up and talked down at you. And uh, he gave me a great lesson about standing behind one of these things. I'd been sober about five years, going to a lot of these things, Blackstone, concerts, conventions, and watching these jokers stand up here and talk, and people got through, and everybody clapped, and hugged them, and kissed them, and kind of appealed to me, you know. <laughs> so one night after meeting, I told Tom I needed to talk to him, and he said, well, come on in the conference room. Another inventory room is what it was. And I sat down, and he stood up, and I told him what my problem was. I said, Tom? I think I'm a convention speaker. <laughs> I can't repeat what he said from the podium. But he put a moratorium on me telling my story for two and a half years. <laughs> Talk all you want to at discussion meetings. You don't tell your story till I tell you. And it was about a little over two years later, he called me one day and went over to the house and said he wanted to talk to me. I didn't know what he'd done. And uh, I sat down and he stood up and said, Dave said, look, you were going down to Columbia, South Carolina, to talk at a state convention. This is what you do. He told me everything I had to do. Before you go, there's something I want to tell you. They asked me to go first. I can't go. And you're going as a damn substitute, and don't you ever forget it as long as you live. <laughs> and so every time I get behind one of these things, I, I know what he's talking about. I'm just a substitute. There's no telling how many you asked before me. <laughs> now, it's always nice to be asked back. I was back up here, I think, in 99 or somewhere back in there. And every time I think of being asked back, I think about uh, Victor's grandfather, Julian Barsman. I'd heard Julian talk uh, in 1961 down in Durham, North Carolina, State Convention. And... Uh, Back in 75, I think it was, it was 25 years later, I invited Julian down to talk at the State Convention in North Carolina. First thing he said from the podium, I must have made a hell of an impression on you people. 25 years later, you asked me to come back. <laughs> 25 years. And I always think about it. But I, I know what a substitute is. But uh, my thinking at that time before I got to uh, Raleigh, I'd got into some bad thinking that and the old-timers called me, and that's what I want to talk about briefly, the old-timers. Now, I've been sober for a period of time, but the old-timers to me are the ones that are here before me. They are the old-timers. And I thank God for the fact I was around a lot of them. 
I was around a lot of them. I can't believe, you know, the only, the only problem with long-term sobriety is you get older. And uh, I look now at the people that I've known over the years and see, when I, I was just a kid, and, and when, I didn't know the value of anything when I came here. I really didn't. And Alcoholics Anonymous has been my life. It's been over half my life is in the fellowship of AA. Everything I have today and everything I'm going to have tomorrow is because of the fellowship of the program. I've been retired 16 years. 16 years, and I look back now and wonder where did the time go? I don't even know when I had time to work, when I worked for 30 some years because of AA. I really don't. I really don't. But they uh, told me that day, said, uh, I've been sober a little over a year, doing some bad stinking thinking, and, uh, and the end result was uh, one of them told me, said, Dave, you're going to get drunk unless you get a hold of these 12 steps to get honest with yourself. And of course, that made me mad. Made me upset, and uh, I, uh, I, I, I got ready to leave that room. And as a matter of fact, I just walked out. By the time I got to do it, my sponsor spoke up and said, "Dave, I want to ask you one question. When was the last time you thanked God for a day of sobriety?" And that made me matter. I went back to that boarding house, and that's when I was young, sober, and uh, went to that. I didn't think about taking a drink, but I wanted to do something to him. You know how we are. We want to do something. And uh, I got in that boarding house in my room, and so I sat down, and I wrote a written resignation to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> By God, I'll get at them. And as I was doing, the com- doing this composition, I began to hear his voice. It was an echo. When was the last time you thanked God? And it began louder and louder until I was forced from my knees to pray to God I really didn't know too much about it. God to me then was a question mark in the sky. Maybe yes, maybe no. And the end result of a juvenile prayer, I was able to walk into a bathroom and look at myself for the first time in my adult life, a little over a year of sobriety, and know that I was just a speck on this universe and that I'll die and soon be forgotten. And the only way I had to go was through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I tried everything. And so the next night I rejoined Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I do it every year when I have a birthday. I just dedicate myself to another year. And I became a member of the clique. You get there before the meeting and stay there after see who does the work, and you'll be a member of the clique too. That's what the clique is. And uh, so I got involved in A in North Carolina and been very uh, walking this whole road of happy destiny for several years and enjoying it. there might be, there are a lot of new people here tonight, I know. And if you're wondering about this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, will it work? Is it possible for it to work for you? Uh, I'm here to tell you that it will work if you want it bad enough. I believe the core and guts of this whole program is based on one word, and that's the truth. Or more briefly, you've got to be honest with yourself. I heard a man in my early sobriety say, when Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth in the body of a man. He said, I am the truth. Man, he said, I am the truth. I am the truth. I believe it's from this source and this root we inherited the program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've seen enough in my time in A.A. not only to believe but to know that there is a power behind this universe that is willing to help us if we're willing to help ourselves. I used to call it the man of staff, and tonight I call it the God of my understanding. The God that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous by your love for me. You know, uh, 
I was, uh, my mother, it took nine and a half years for my mother to ever set me back in her life as a son after I got sober. She couldn't understand for a long, long time how I could do this for a bunch of strangers and couldn't do it for her. And later on, it's a long story, but she became a close friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. My two sisters that are living today, uh, one of them wants to join AA. Don't even have a problem, but uh, <laughs> she says we have too much fun. And uh, it's things like that have happened. And then Julie that came in my life. Uh, uh, I've often said that God closes doors and he opens doors. And when Sue died uh, about ten years ago, uh, uh, Julie came into my life later on and became my wife. And uh, and uh, and she's an alcoholic. I were, we don't have any problems. She just won't let me sponsor her. That's all. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, and then come grandkids, uh, something I never experienced because there was no children in my first marriage. And, uh, and because of Julie's children, uh, all of them grown, they got grandkids. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it shakes you when they call you grandpa. And I never knew anything like that. All because of Alcoholics Anonymous. All because of Alcoholics Anonymous. In spite of this God-given sobriety, I've come to know that there are several things I still have to do. You remember when I came to you, I told you I was willing to go any length to get this program. Sometimes I have to remind myself of that when the phone rings in the middle of the night and some guy, yeah, I want some help. The thought crosses my mind, uh, one of the things, wait after breakfast. <laughs> and I happen to remember that that first night, those three guys didn't drop me off and say we'll be back after breakfast. Hell no, it doesn't work that way. That's not the way it works. They took the time in the middle of the night to share their experience and hope with me so that I could understand where I was going. And I don't want to ever forget that. The second thing I have to do is I have to, I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's where it's at. That's where we survive among individual egos. And that's where, you know, if you, the most practiced position that you and I have is a home group or the love of your home group because uh, they usually know if you're walking like you're talking. And if you're not, they'll let you know the love of a home group. And there's laughter in a home group. Like old Henry. Old Henry was a drunk that had a lot of problems staying sober. He died at 26 years of sobriety, but he couldn't get sober. His wife called one night and says uh, I'm, he can't come home anymore. So he was taken down to the funeral home. Old John worked at the funeral home. John says, bring him down here and we'll put him in a casket and let him sleep it off. <laughs> and so we did. And uh, the next morning, uh, John, you know, the, the display room, dusting off casket and everything. And, and Henry rises up and says, where am I? And John says, you're dead, Henry. <laughs> and uh, John, uh, Henry says, uh, how long have I been dead? And uh, John said, you've been dead two days. And uh, Henry says, well, what are you doing here? He said, I'm dead too. And he said, how long have you been dead? He said, I've been dead ten days. Henry said, well, you ought to know where we can find a drink. Uh, it's, it's people like that i got to be around. The home group. And the third thing I have to do is I have to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because that is the, that is the program. It, it tells me in your group, in, my, in your book, in my book, that we are granted a daily reprieve continued upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And I happen to know 
that as long as I've been doing that, my spiritual condition has been on the right track. And the fourth thing I have to do, and you know what I'm talking about, some days I just have to hang on. There are going to be days like that. They told me way back yonder there are going to be days like that. Just hang on and they'll get better. And it's this I believe that yesterday is my experience and tomorrow is my hope. And today is going from one to the other and doing the best I can. And as long as I can walk hand in hand with you down this happy road of destiny, I too believe that I'll be granted another day of sobriety. That's what it's all about. Is it a coincidence that I'm here tonight and see some friends I don't know what it is that will help me in my sobriety? Is it a coincidence? If it is a coincidence, I'll define a coincidence. As an act of God in the midst of time, the same God has been doing for you and I that which we could not do for ourselves. God the Father of all mankind. There's a... I used to not tell people this, but I'll tell you and be honest. There's a few lines in the book. I used to let people have the impression that it was my words for a while. <laughs> people start asking questions. And, uh, and it's the most powerful, one of the most powerful phrases in the big book, and I, and I close with it every time I have for years, because I could have said this and sat down, because it tells my story and probably yours. And it goes something like this. This great experience that release from the bondage of hatred and replace it with love is really an affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous and everything I need I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. Thank you very much. Thank you.